Hello, and welcome to Military History Inside Out, brought to you by War Scholar, where we talk about military history from ancient times to modern and everything in between. I'm Chris Alvarez, and today's guest is Dr. Emily Meyerding, who talks about wars that were ostensibly started over the national desire for oil. Thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Emily Meyerding, author of The Oil Wars Myth, Petroleum, and the Causes of International Conflict, published by Cornell University Press, coming out May 15th, 2020. Thank you for speaking with me. Thanks for having me. So first, um, how did you get into uh, studying and writing on this subject? Well, I um, was interested in natural resources, and um, I had been studying Arabic, actually, and thought, well, oil was an interesting place, uh, an interesting thing to work on. Uh, and I'd read a bunch about oil and civil wars, um, but the topic seemed pretty well explored. So I thought, well, maybe I'll look at oil and international wars. And I assumed that it would be a very well-studied topic uh, and that I'd be just adding a little bit to um, research that had already been conducted. But as it turns out, there actually isn't a ton of research on um, the role that oil plays in international conflicts. So tell me how you uh, break this book down. I, I see in the blurb that uh, the case studies you, you look at are World War II, the two American Gulf Wars, Iran-Iraq War, the Falklands-Malvinas War, and the Chaco War. Do you divide the book up between the different wars, or is there another way you break it down? So I break it down. Um, in first of all, there's a uh, I do an overview where I look at all of the what are known as militarized interstate disputes from 1912 to 2010. Uh, these are conflicts that range from states threatening each other all the way up to them engaging in international wars. Um, so this anything from a small "you're on my territory, get out of here." to World War II. Um, so I do a study looking at all of the militarized interstate disputes that involve territory, uh, because what I'm really looking at is when states compete for direct control over oil resources. There are a lot of different ways that oil could potentially influence war, but I'm interested in competition for the resources themselves. So what I do is I look at all of the situations in which countries could have been involved in a militarized conflict but for control over oil resources from 1910 till 2000, uh, 1912 till 2010. Mm -hmm. And that was about 600 conflicts. Uh, so I actually went through all of those to see which ones could potentially have involved oil resources. Uh, based on that, I identified 180 where that was possible. And then I looked at the, I looked at what was going on in each of these conflicts and whether oil served as a significant incentive for the countries to get involved in the conflict. Uh, so I did this larger study first, and then I looked at the most significant cases of each of four different types of conflict. Mm -hmm. Now, when you, um, so one example that jumps out at me when you say, um, a conflict for oil resources, just looking at World War II, um, Japan, I guess Japan took the steps it did in December 1941 because the U.S. had cut off oil uh, shipments to it, I believe. Um, so is it, so, so when you're talking about for oil resources, do you mean access or actual um, physical control of, of resources? 
Um, I'm looking at control over resources. Uh, in that case, I completely agree that uh, Japan uh, invaded the Dutch East Indies uh, in order to grab the oil resources there because they needed access to them. Uh, but what I argue in the book is that um, just looking at that attack and saying the war was caused by oil ignores the larger context in which the, or- the war was occurring. Uh, the fact that Japan had already been at war with China since at least 1937 and possibly 1931, depending on when you count the start date. And so I look at the oil issue in that broader context, uh, that Japan was not specifically trying to get oil when it started the war with China. The oil needs were um, endogenous to the war effort, that because of the war, Japan lost access to its oil and therefore needed to find another source of petroleum resources. So what I'm arguing is that certainly this campaign to grab oil was motivated by resource concerns, but the broader war in which it took place was not. Mm -hmm. And it also makes me think about Germany. They became allied. I guess Romania had oil resources that they, but as allies, they protected it more than, you know, there wasn't a grab for it, I don't think. Right, exactly. In both of those cases, um, oil was not the initial reason for the war. Uh, Germany wasn't initially going to war in order to get oil resources. Japan wasn't initially going to war with China to get oil. Um, but because of the war, they lost access to supplies, the, the supplies that they were getting, uh, and they had to find new ways to get oil. But interestingly, in both of those cases, these countries tried everything first before they invaded another country. Uh, They tried to get oil concessions uh, in different places. They tried to develop oil alternatives. Uh, Germany was very successful at that. Japan was not very successful at that. They tried to establish trade agreements. And it was really as a last resort that they actually invaded other oil-rich countries. And um, so uh, the Falklands War. um, Yes. I thought I was familiar enough with it, but I I didn't know oil was a, a big part of it. Um, can you talk about that one? So I wouldn't say it's a huge part of it. And one of the main things that I'm arguing is that this case, um, at the time there was some reporting suggesting that this was the reason that either that Argentina was invading the islands or that Great Britain was trying to defend them. Uh, and it's become a, a popular explanation, um, especially in Argentina to try to rationalize why the UK is so attached to these islands. Uh, if there was oil there, maybe that would make more sense. Um, so these days, I think most people wouldn't say that oil played a super prominent role, but in 1982, there was a lot more of that belief. Uh, and so what happened is that rumors that there was oil around the islands, uh, emerged in the 1970s. Uh, and at that point there was actually a hope, especially on the, the British part that oil could be used to resolve the dispute over the islands, uh, with Great Britain and Uh, Argentina cooperating over those oil resources, Um, that the British hoped that maybe if the Argentines could get the oil, they'd give up on their sovereignty claims to the islands. Uh, The Argentines had no interest in doing that. um, But my main argument about the Falklands War is that, yes, there was all of this concern about oil. Yes, it was. um, There was a lot of public rhetoric about it at the time, but it really had nothing to do with why Argentina attacked the islands. Hmm. And you say you start with uh, cases in, in 1912. Um, what was going on in the 1910s and 20s um, 
where people were talking about oil as a factor? So I start my analysis in 1912 because that's the year that uh, Great Britain decided to switch the Royal Navy's primary fuel from coal to oil. Mm -hmm. And that's the point at which oil becomes a strategic resource. So I figured before that, it's probably not worth fighting over. We can leave those any of those cases out. After 1912, then maybe it is worth fighting for. So it was a kind of natural break point, and it allowed me to look at a whole century of conflicts. The World War I is the point at which uh, people realize how important oil is to modern warfare. Mm-hmm. Um, they need it for trucks, they need it for tanks, they need it for airplanes. Uh, and after the war, uh, Lord Curzon said that the Allies um, floated to victory on a wave of oil. Uh, so w- there was a recognition that from that point onward, um, countries were going to need access to oil resources in order to fight wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if they didn't have that access, uh, they were destined to lose. Mm-hmm. So when I asked my question, um, so, I, you know, of course, I know World War One was going on in this period, but um, I'd never uh, read about oil being a big part of uh, strategic movements or, or anything like that, or even motivations in World War One. During World War One, was there any talk about um, oil in a big way? Uh, yes, there was concern. Um, in particular, uh, the British were concerned about oil access after the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had already gotten involved in Iran in order to try to secure the British Navy's access to oil resources. Uh, and World War One, the, tra- the trajectory of World War One really made them concerned about their post-war effort. Uh, so they actually got involved in what would become Iraq in order to gain a toehold in Mesopotamia and be sure that they would have access to oil during the war. So they actually, in the last year of the war, stage an oil campaign in Mesopotamia in order to ensure that access. So this is another case where a war didn't start because of oil, but oil concerns conditioned some of the campaigns that occurred during the conflict. I'm speaking with Dr. Emily Meyerding, author of The Oil Wars Myth. You can find more information at emilymeyerding.net. Please rate this podcast on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. Your ratings go a long way in increasing the listenership of this podcast. Please sign up for my newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. Please post your comments about this podcast or the episode on Facebook at WarScholar, or on YouTube at WarScholar1945. You can contact me directly on Twitter at WarScholar, or on Instagram at Chris Alvarez WarScholar. If you like science fiction, fantasy, and horror, please listen to my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, also located at chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. If you like outer space business, technology, and policy, please listen to my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Your support is greatly appreciated. Now back to the podcast. So again, in the in the description of the book, you're sort of presenting arguments countering the idea that, that wars are, are fought for oil. However, could you say that in peacetime, governments maneuver themselves um, militarily so that they can... Um, access oil quickly if needed. Absolutely. Um, There are all kinds of things that countries do to ensure their energy security, uh, whether that's having um, formal or informal alliances with oil-producing states, 
or trying to push civil wars to go in a certain direction. So you get a leader that uh, will be more a more reliable supplier of oil resources. Um, what my book is, is saying is it, it's really taking a small part of the picture and saying this idea that violent conflict, that militarized conflicts, that countries actually go out and try to engage in these imperialistic oil grabs uh, on any scale, uh, that really doesn't happen. Uh, but do countries do other things to ensure oil access? Certainly. Okay. And I guess the big one most recently is people saying that uh, the U.S. Um, went into Iraq for its oil. And I guess in, in your book, you would argue, no, that was not the the motivation. So I disagree with the idea that the U.S. went into Iraq in order to grab the country's oil for itself. Uh, mm-hmm. There's there's no evidence that the United States had any intention of staying over the long term in Iraq. Uh, the plan was to invade the country, to overthrow Saddam Hussein, to be there temporarily and then withdraw. Uh, and there was a recognition that um, that oil needed to be returned to Iraqi authority as soon as possible in order for it to be efficiently developed. Uh, because um, the Americans knew that basically no foreign companies would invest in Iraq unless their contracts were secure. And if the United States was in control of the country, those contracts would not be secure. So the United States wasn't going in to grab Iraq's oil. Uh, there is a theory, and I I wasn't able to find enough information to say whether or not this theory is accurate, but there's a theory that um, the United States wanted to remove Saddam Hussein so that there would be a more reliable, um, so there would be someone more reliable in charge of Iraq who would be less inclined to manipulate global oil supplies. And also that if Saddam was removed, then sanctions against Iraq could be lifted, which would facilitate the flow of investment capital into Iraq's oil industry so the country could increase its production. Because at the time, around 2000, there was, you know, this is the era of peak oil. People are concerned that the world is running out Hmm. and Iraq has enough reserves to really increase its oil output, uh, but it was unable to do that under sanctions. So one theory is that by overthrowing Saddam Hussein, it was possible to increase Iraqi oil production. Was that the motive? I haven't been able to determine that for certain, uh, but I am absolutely certain that the U.S. wasn't trying to uh, go in and take the oil, as President Trump has said. Mm -hmm. Now, so you said you looked at 600 case studies between um, 1912 and 2010. Did you say, did you find any that were motivated by a grab uh, to, to grab oil. So what I did find is uh, what I when I looked at these cases, uh, like I said, there were about 180 candidate cases, ones where countries plausibly could have been fighting for oil, oh, right. and I divided those into four categories. Um, one of those I called red herrings. Those are cases in which countries were not trying to get oil resources. Uh, that includes the Chaco War and the Falklands War. Uh, the second category is oil campaigns, uh, which I'd mentioned in reference to World War II. Those are situations where a war starts for reasons that are unrelated to oil, but some of the campaigns in the war are more oil-driven. A third category is what I call oil spats. These are very minor militarized confrontations in which countries are actually 
fighting for oil. So there have been about 20 of these uh, in the they've all all or almost all of them have happened since the first energy crisis in the early 1970s. And these are basically these situations that you see in the South China Sea, uh, the East China Sea, in the Eastern Mediterranean, where one country decides I'm going to explore for oil in this contested territory. And another country says, no, you're not. And so I'm going to send out my fishing vessel to cut your seismic survey cables. Um, so states periodically do that. They engage in these little spat things, but those never escalate. They always, they're almost always non-fatal. They never become larger conflicts. So countries do do this kind of sparring for oil once in a while, um, but it doesn't happen very often. And it's always between countries that have a history of hostility. Mm. They didn't get along before oil enters the picture. They continue to not get along. So that's those are the cases where that I would say, yes, oil is the motive. Um, so oil can inspire very minor interstate conflicts once in a while. Mm-hmm. Um, the other case that is the the more controversial case is Iraq's invasion of Kuwait in 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, this is the big case. This is the case that even people who say they don't believe in oil wars say, but this case, this was an oil war. Um And I would say that this is the case that comes the closest uh, because Saddam Hussein did invade invade Kuwait and he did seize the country's oil resources. Uh, And there are a couple of different oil war um, interpretations of that conflict. Uh, One of them is the greedy interpretation uh, where Saddam Hussein wanted to control 20% of global oil reserves. So he goes and invades Kuwait, grabs their oil out of greed. The other explanation is what I call the needy explanation, which says that uh, Kuwait and the United Arab Emirates were producing more oil above their OPEC production quotas that was driving down global oil prices. Iraq was suffering from a revenue shortage, and therefore it invaded Kuwait in order to try to decrease its production and cause oil prices to rise. That explanation is partially correct but it's only part of the story. Um, I did research at the Conflict Records Research Center, uh, which is housed at the the National Defense University. Uh, It's unfortunately closed now, um, but it contained records from the um, Saddam Hussein regime, which were seized in 2003. And looking at that archive, what I determined was that Saddam was concerned about oil But he was concerned about oil because he believed that the United States was pushing Kuwait and the UAE to overproduce oil and to drive down prices. And he thought this was part of a broader campaign by the United States to overthrow his regime. So he ends up invading Kuwait. He saw it as a defensive measure that essentially the only way for him to survive, the only way for him to push back against the United States was to invade this other country. So I call this case um, an oil gambit because, yes, Iraq was targeting Kuwait's oil, but it was a trying to achieve something much larger, which was to protect itself against what it perceived as American aggression. Hmm. And it makes me wonder if how many conflicts might there be, because what you're describing almost sounds like they're trying to protect their economic uh, situation. I would say economic situation, but even more than that, that that. Saddam saw this as a war for survival. 
Uh, he believed that the United States had been targeting him since the 1970s, uh, and that if this oil price war didn't get him removed, uh, that they would turn to that the U.S. would turn to aggression, even to nuclear weapons. Basically, whatever it took to get him out, that would be the next U.S. action. Uh, so he saw this as an existential threat uh, and a battle for his survival. So the Iran-Iraq war right before that, um, what was going on there? What was the, what was the oil angle in that that war? Uh, the the reason that people call it, uh, some people have said that it's related to oil, is that Iraq invaded Iran's richest oil province, Khuzestan. Um, and so in doing, the province produces 80% of Iran's oil. That was where most of the war was fought. And so there was a belief that Iraq was invading Iran in order to grab its oil resources. In fact, uh, the Iraqis had much more limited territorial ambitions. They believed that the Iranians over the previous um, at least 60, 70, 80 years had gradually been encroaching on Iraqi land in the middle of the border. Uh, and so the Iraqis wanted to regain control over about 300 square kilometers of territory uh, along the central border area. Uh, and they wanted to regain full authority over the Shat al-Arab waterway that forms the southernmost part of the state's um, boundary. So Iraq actually had quite limited territorial ambitions. Um, they attacked and invaded Iran in order to pressure Iran to make those concessions. But they repeatedly said that they would withdraw once those concessions were made. Uh, and these were public statements. Um, there's every indication that that was initially the plan, uh, that if Iran conceded to Iraq's demands, then Iraq would accept the um, the old border along with these minor modifications. How, uh, how many of the cases that you looked at involved Saudi Arabia? Actually, none of them. Hmm. Uh, they... There has been a territorial dispute between Saudi Arabia and Qatar, uh, but it's not it's not listed in the data set that I used as a territorial conflict. So, the, so I was working. The 600 cases came from an existing data set in international relations. Hmm. Uh, so I was working off of that. So Saudi Arabia is involved in some militarized dispute conflicts with Yemen. Um, that there are some, there's disagreement over the precise location of the boundary between the two countries. Uh, and so I looked at those cases to see whether or not there was oil in that contested border area. Uh, and those were cases where I discovered that the oil was far enough south that it's not realistic to say that any of the militarized incidents were over control of those oil resources. Hmm. And how about Africa? Do you have many case cases that you looked at in Africa that maybe touch on where you had to make a determination whether it was for oil or not? And uh, The most prominent one uh, related to the dispute between Nigeria and Cameroon over the Pakasi Peninsula. Uh, this is a territory that has been... Uh, it's, it's part, its contestation dates back to the country's uh, colonial history, um, but it's been an actively contested area since the 1970s. Um, and there were some fairly significant militarized incidents on the peninsula in uh, the early 1990s. Um, these are actually, if you look at all of these cases involving um, 
potential content conflicts over oil, where there was actually potentially oil at stake. Uh, this is one of the more severe conflicts uh, in the sense that there were about 100 deaths as a result of this dispute. What I found was that there were a lot of rumors that the peninsula contained oil resources, uh, and there were certainly oil resources offshore, but there's no evidence that that's why Nigeria attacked Cameroon at that point. Uh, the general consensus is that uh, Nigeria invaded as, uh, as a diversionary strategy. Uh, the leader of Nigeria, Sani Abacha, was facing intense international criticism over his management of the um, Agoni uh, movement in the Niger Delta. And so the uh, narrative that I heard actually based on field work that I conducted in the region was that, uh, that this was a diversionary conflict and that um, Abacha was indifferent to the area's oil. Hmm. Now, I don't know if this falls within the scope of your book. How, how what if someone were to argue, okay, well, maybe these countries didn't directly um, fight or, over oil or, you know, it wasn't for oil. But what about oil companies behind the scenes manipulating uh, the situation because they wanted access through some nation, you know, for some oil resources? Um, so I would say that the last thing that oil companies want is militarized conflicts. Um, they are allergic to any kind of political instability because it's terrible for business. Mm. So um, companies have actually pushed countries to resolve their territorial disagreements. Uh, they have um, encouraged them to draw international boundaries or to establish joint development agreements, uh, anything that will en enable those companies to try to explore for and develop oil resources in peace. Um, because the companies recognize that, say you have two countries that are disagreeing over territory like China and Vietnam, even if one of those countries is able to conquer the other temporarily, there's likely to be resistance from the country that lost. So, as a, and the companies just don't want to be involved in that kind of disagreement. Um, I actually identify, I have a theoretical chapter that talks about why countries don't fight over oil resources. Mm -hmm. uh, and I say that there are four types of costs that they're taking into consideration when they're making these decisions. And one of these types of costs is what I call investment costs. And these are the um, impediments to international investment that are caused by political instability and militarized conflict. Basically, countries will get a much better deal on their oil resources from oil companies if there's political stability. And the companies uh, will do what they can to encourage that. Hmm. So you mentioned um, oil companies or, you know, trying to help maintain peace. Does that go, do you see that going all the way back to 1912? Or when did that sort of behavior uh, begin, do you think? I, so I didn't look for that specifically um, in order to have a better understanding of the role that they've played over time. I would need to focus on, on the companies themselves. Um, I saw them sort of tangentially, but because I was focused on uh, countries' decision-making, I didn't necessarily zoom in on companies' activities in these conflicts. Mm -hmm. Did you, do you have any part of the book that discusses why 
uh, these ideas exist then contrary to the evidence that you found? I do, uh, because that was, that was a huge puzzle for me with this project. Um, when I started this project, I thought oil wars happened. Um, I just assumed they did. Um, like everybody else, of course, countries fight over oil. That's what countries do. Um, so it was a real surprise to me to discover that they really don't. Um, so I wanted to try to understand why that was, um, why, why we believed in this idea, despite the fact that it doesn't actually really happen. Um, and so what I said, this is why this is, this is the book's title, uh, the oil wars myth. Uh, I said that oil wars are a myth, which is a story we tell ourselves about how the world works. Uh, it's the commonplace, it's the conventional wisdom. Uh, it's something that we believe to be true without necessarily a lot of evidence. And I argue that the reason that oil wars have become mythologized uh, is because they exist at this intersection of two other broader, long-standing narratives. Uh, and I call these narratives, uh, first, the Mad Max myth, uh, and second, the El Dorado myth. Uh, and the Mad Max myth, uh, obviously named after the film series, <laughs> but it's this idea that really dates back to Thomas Malthus, the idea that, that societies will inevitably run short of critical resource supplies, and that when they face scarcity, people will fight over the resources. Uh, this is kind of an elaboration of Malthus. And we've seen this idea. It appears in Malthus's writing. It appears in Charles Darwin. It appears progressively in academic writing and popular culture for over 200 years, this idea of competition and violent conflict over scarce resources. Um, and oil wars embody this narrative of competition over scarce resources. So that's one side of the equation. The other side, the El Dorado myth, uh, is the idea, so it's the myth of El Dorado, the golden city or the golden man uh, that people pursue greedily uh, in order to enrich themselves. So oil wars also have this greedy narrative associated with them, that oil is desirable, oil is a source of enormous wealth, oil is black gold. Um, so what I argue is we have one narrative about need and one narrative about greed hmm. and oil wars embody both of those. So they're very, very easy to believe in. Hmm. Interesting. I'm speaking with Dr. Emily Meyerding, author of the oil wars myth. You can find more information at emilymeyerding.net. Please rate this podcast on whatever podcast feed you're listening to it on. Your ratings go a long way in increasing the listenership of this podcast. Please sign up for my newsletter at warscholar.org or militaryhistorypodcast.com. Please post your comments about this podcast or the episode on Facebook at Warscholar or on YouTube at Warscholar1945. You can contact me directly on Twitter at Warscholar or on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Warscholar. If you like science fiction, fantasy, and horror, Please listen to my podcast, Full Contact Nerd, also located at chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. If you like outer space business, technology, and policy, please listen to my podcast, Spacewalks Money Talks, also located at spacewalksmoneytalks.com. Your support is greatly appreciated. Now back to the podcast. 
So how, so you mentioned uh, one archive, at least one archive you used for um, to get records from. What what else did you use um, for your research? Uh, so I used the Conflict Records Research Center for the Iran Iraq War and for the um, for Iraq's invasion of Kuwait. So I was because I was looking at such a wide range of conflicts, I was using a huge number of sources. Uh, I was partly drawing on um, reference volumes of territorial disputes and militarized conflicts. Uh, I was also doing a lot of searching of, of journalistic sources uh, in order to figure out both what had happened in many of these militarized incidents, uh, but also how people were writing about them at the time. Um, so a lot of searches of historical news archives, uh, secondary source case histories, uh, and then for the um, purposes of the Iraq conflicts, looking at the archival research, uh, archival materials from the Conflict Records Research Center. Okay. And I, did you mention you did some field work in Africa? Was that for something else? Uh, I that was um, during my dissertation research. Uh, it was it was a case I couldn't understand. Um, I I really couldn't figure out what was going on in Cameroon and Nigeria. Uh, in this conflict, and I wasn't able to figure it out based on library research and based on news sources. And so I uh, went to try to get a better sense of, of what had happened. Okay. Now, what part of the research was most enjoyable? I know it can be probably uh, a little dry, but I would say I would say the the most enjoyable part was really having it come together. Um, looking at so many cases to see these common patterns uh, and to be able to see consistent dynamics across a broad range of cases. Um, I studied history as an undergraduate, um, love history, but I the part of the appeal of political science for me is trying to do this kind of comparative analysis and with the hope that by looking at a large number of cases, we can figure out common patterns. And so looking at this data and being able to actually see common patterns in terms of how countries respond to their oil needs um, was incredibly satisfying. Um, and was, I would say, the part of the research that I'm really pleased about. Now, I know you mentioned that. Uh, so my next question is, um, what did you find that was most surprising? And I know you started your research thinking your conclusion would be one thing, and then it became, a, you know, almost the opposite. Um, but was there anything else that you came across that surprised you? The discoveries about Iraq, in, um, about Iraq's beliefs about the invasion of Kuwait was a real surprise. Um, that, you know, we all know the narrative, right, that... Saddam Hussein um, was complaining about Kuwait slant drilling into the Rumaila oil field. And he had this meeting with American ambassador April Glaspie, and she gave him a green light to inadvertently gave him a green light to invade Kuwait. And so it was this combination of greedy desire for oil and desperation about oil prices and the desire to control this entire transboundary field. And, and that's what happened. Um, and what shocked me was to discover that, well, first, that it wasn't, the conversation wasn't a green light at all. Um, I think that Saddam was looking for reassurance. 
he wanted to hear that the United States wasn't trying to overthrow him. And that he, the fact that he felt so under siege um, was just a, a real shock to me. And it was also fascinating to see how that mindset developed and expressed itself over time, um, including in things like he... Uh, he was the Iran-Contra scandal. Uh, he was infuriated by it, and he saw it as evidence of the United States um, being completely unreliable. Um, and he referred to that in his meeting with Glaspie, saying that uh, these new events remind us of old circumstances. And it was just interesting to see how someone, when you start from a few wrong assumptions, how it can spin itself out into this completely internally logical but externally wrong worldview mm -hmm. yeah i've heard that about saddam as well with um uh the, the most recent war in iraq i i just get this impression that he was playing all kinds of games and had all kinds of strange ideas and um it kind of <laughs> caused him a lot of problems in the end yeah they were impeccably internally logical but based on some really bad assumptions mm -hmm. um but I think, and I think we see this from a lot of leaders, though, where they're um, they're saying this, trying to. The, there's actually a similar dynamic before World War II uh, for Japan um, that they're, on the one hand, they're desperately trying to avoid a war with the United States. They're engaged in, in diplomatic negotiations um, after the U.S. Uh, imposes trade restrictions on oil. They're desperately trying to get the U.S. to to lift those because they know that they can't win a war with the U.S. Um, but at the same time, they're worried they're going to have to fight a war with the U.S. So they are continuing to build up their military and their navy. Um, and it's partly those mixed messages that caused the Americans to say, you know what, to heck with this. Um, you are unreliable and uh, an adversary and we cannot resolve this peacefully. But yeah, trying to, especially under des desperate circumstances, um, countries try to play both sides and it, it never seems to go well. Hmm. Yeah. Now, I think you mentioned uh, some difficult parts uh, there were for you to research, but um, what would you say s um, sticks out as the most difficult question for you to either finally come to a conclusion on or, or which you really still grapple with? I think plenty of things did, <laughs> but... I spent a long time on it. So by the time I got to the end, I, I was pretty confident um, in what I put into the book. And I think that there are certainly some cases where I, I expect people to disagree with me. Um, but partly because I knew that this was a controversial argument, I spent a lot of time looking at these cases to try to make sure that I, I could stand by my interpretations. Hmm. Now, I know this is research and it is dry, but was there anything you came across that had an emotional impact on you, either positively or negatively? So I'm going to reject the premise of the question because I think this research is fascinating. Mm -hmm. um, I, I might be the only academic on earth who finished their book and is still interested in their topic. Mm -hmm. Um, I find this idea of competition over resources um, and the ways that countries try to get access to energy resources pretty much endlessly fascinating. Uh, so I really enjoyed getting to learn so much about so many different territorial disputes. 
Uh, it means that I have sort of a weird geographic knowledge. Uh, if there was an oil dispute there, I know it well. If it, what there wasn't, who knows? <laughs> um, but it, it was a really interesting topic to study um, because it was hundreds of different stories. And that was terrific. And, and especially the ones that I was able to do these deeper dives and really get a sense of what decision makers were thinking. Um, it was a really great process. You know, for some reason, this popped into my mind, and I know it's well before the period you covered, but it's interesting that Russia, you know, took over so much of Siberia, you know, just normal aggression, territorial aggression. You know, they took all this territory, which ended up being very um, oil rich, you know, resource rich, um, mm -hmm. you know, driving out the local indigenous populations. And actually, you could say the same with um, the United States and Canada driving out indigenous populations and ending up with oil rich lands that uh, um, they could use, you know, in the 20th century. Yeah, I think one thing that I, I talk about in the conclusion to the book is is this idea that it's sort of building on thought is is this in a weird way oil is different um, and lots of people say oil is different for a variety of reasons but what's surprising is the fact that that there has not been much of that there really hasn't been any of that imperial expansion when it comes to oil uh, countries have expanded and engaged in aggression to grab all sorts of other resources but there's something about the timing of oil which became important in the 20th century when there are many more constraints on that kind of international aggression so ironically oil which might be the most valuable resource we've ever had has inspired less aggression and less imperialism and less territorial expansion than many other resources yeah, that is it. <laughs> that is interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder what happens if, um, if you know, biofuel or some replacement is eventually developed, you know, and then oil just disappears. Is you know, it'll be just a a, a relic of the the twentieth, twenty first century. This this oil. Well, I I have to I have to say I've been watching since the beginning of this year, watching oil prices progressively drop and thinking. Well, this is, is not really the right time to be coming out with a book about oil wars. <laughs> um, precisely for that reason, uh, is this topic no longer relevant if we move on to an era in which um, countries no longer have an incentive to fight for oil? But I've spent some time thinking about it, and I realize I think my book still is relevant because what I'm saying is that these wars were never about oil. They were always about other things. Um, so even if oil is taken out of the picture, we'll still see plenty of these conflicts. Um, they just we won't call them oil wars anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, definitely the book is still a study of international conflict, uh, regardless of the um, the reasons. So what what do you hope the book will do? Uh, so I hope the book will start to unwind a little this assumption that countries fight oil wars. Um, it is really hard to challenge a conventional wisdom. So if I can even move the needle a little uh, and to get people to question these narratives about oil wars and these assumptions that when they see a conflict in an area with oil or natural gas, that it's the resource that caused the conflict. Uh, if I can 
get people to not immediately jump to that conclusion, that would be terrific. Actually, that uh, a question that popped in my head. Um, did you see any uh, regional differences as far as public perception of war? Like, did the is the oil myth stronger in some countries or regions than others? Um, I didn't really look into that, and because I was using primarily English language language sources, I would have had a biased interpretation. Hmm. Um, I do think that that the the amount of um, the strength of these narratives about oil explanations for conflicts uh, definitely rise and fall with the price of oil. Mm. Uh, that when oil prices are high, everyone interprets conflicts as oil wars. When they drop, they're not oil wars anymore. Um, so there's the temporal variation, but I didn't really look. I didn't look to see whether there was a regional variation. One thing I did find is that in terms of these patterns about. Um, you know, which countries compete over oil, which countries engage in oil spats, it's remarkably consistent. Um, the dynamics are, are the same cross-regionally. Uh, it's always countries that didn't really get along. It's usually maritime disputes. It's usually places where oil is rumored to exist but hasn't been discovered yet. Um, and very often, um, one politician is using the oil issue as a way to try to rally domestic popular support. Um, and mm. that happens everywhere. Um, do you have any information that the U S oil crisis in the seventies, mm-hmm. um, was, do you know, it was the U S public, was there any clamor for, for war in any way, um, to deal with the crisis? Uh, yes. Um, so the United States government actually considered invading um, Saudi Arabia or Libya uh, in order to seize control over oil resources. Uh, the idea was rejected pretty quickly um, <laughs> because it was uh, it was considered unfeasible for a variety of reasons. Um, one was the risk of local resistance. Uh, another was the risk of uh, a Soviet response, um, retaliatory response. Uh, and other people pointed out that from a normative perspective, this taking other countries' oil just was not going to fly. Um, but it was certainly considered uh, because of the severity of um, the perceived crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and Henry Kissinger said that uh, – he, well, he said that the U.S. would only go to war – to grab oil to prevent the quote strangulation of industrialized countries. Uh, so on the one hand, he was saying we won't go to war. But on the other hand, he said he was saying if things get bad enough, we might. Hmm. Are there any other? Did he come up across any other cases similar to that where some country was suffering so badly they considered going to war for oil? There. Let's see. There was some consideration because to have the u.s stand alone you know among (laughs) as the one country that was considering something like this is is kind of sad actually so um yeah no that's a good point um the another way to think about it is that one of the reasons that the united states might have been able to do that was because of the fact that it would have been acting on behalf of European partners, um, that there was an idea that 
if the, the situation was desperate enough, other countries would be in favor of it and would support the United States' action. Uh, I mean, another way to think about it, in 1991, when the United States uh, engaged in Operation Desert Storm in response to Saddam invading Kuwait, um, the oil rationale was that was a there was a big that was a big reason for the United States responding, uh, and that was a big reason that the United States was able to build such a large coalition uh, because nobody wanted Saddam to control 20% of global oil reserves. Hmm. Interesting. So the U.S. is you know maybe taking the lead, but not the only one with that incentive structure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Huh. Uh, did you have any difficulties getting the book um, finished or published? I, aside from just getting it finished writing, uh, I actually had a, a smooth publication um, review and publication process. I had some very encouraging reviewers, a great editorial team. So happily, it uh, seems to be a topic that uh, people are interested in. And I think that helped me along. Okay. Was this your first book or is this your first book? Uh, this is my first book. Oh, okay. Okay. What's your next writing project, if there is one um, yet? So I'm working on a variety of projects. Uh, having looked at oil and international conflict, um, it made me very interested in trying to understand the flip side of that, uh, oil and international cooperation. Um, so I'm interested in when countries, especially countries engaged in territorial disputes, are able to cooperatively manage their natural resources. Uh, so that's one project that I'm looking at. Uh, and another one that I'm looking at currently is looking at how countries respond to low oil prices. How do they try to get through periods where they suddenly are going through a revenue crisis? So are you, uh, do you have uh, social media or websites? Where can people find you? Uh, so I've got, I'm on Twitter mm-hmm. uh, at E. Meyerding. I'll spell that out for listeners. That's E M E I E. R-D-I-N-G. Uh, and I also have a personal website. And, and what's the address of that one? Uh, that is emilymeyerding.net. Okay. All right. Uh, well, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this on your favorite podcast feed under the title Military History Inside Out. That includes Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. One great way to support me is to rate my podcasts, either good or bad. You can find more great military history information at warscholar.org, on YouTube at warscholar1945, on Facebook at warscholar, on Instagram at Chris Alvarez Warscholar, and on Twitter at warscholar. Please support me by following me on those sites and liking my videos. If you like to read, Don't forget to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I recommend newly published books. The subscription box is on my webpage. Thank you.